This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. As the highly contagious BA2 variant ramps up, COVID testing is winding down. The government is no longer paying for COVID tests or vaccines for uninsured people. And Illinois closed 10 testing sites last week. Meanwhile, BA2 now accounts for 55% of cases worldwide. Does this leave Illinois vulnerable to another surge? Let's ask infectious disease specialist Dr. Mia Taramina with Dooley Health and Care. Hi, Dr. Taramina. Welcome back. Hey, Sasha. Let's talk about where we are today, Dr. Chicago's COVID positivity rate is 1.4%. Remind us what this number means. So it's a little bit difficult to interpret since so many people are, are again using those at-home tests. And we also have big testing sites winding down. So it may be a little bit falsely low. That being said, we're still in a very, very reasonable place compared to where we were several months ago. We have positivity rates that have stayed below 2%, 1.2, 1.4, 1.6, little ticks up here and there, but nothing that's giving me tremendous concern that we are missing a significant number of infections. And we're seeing that in other ways, too, with our hospitalization rates going down and things like that. Now, testing is down 8% from a week ago. Um, As I mentioned, Illinois closed 10 testing sites. Does it make sense for Chicago to be testing less right now? You know, I think that there's multiple things coming into play here. I think people are going to testing sites less because they do have access to free at-home testing if they've received a supply. I think that there are fewer and fewer requirements for travel and other things to have testing prior to travel. So that cuts down on individuals who are otherwise well. Um, I think there are a lot of hospitals moving away from pre-surgical testing for certain procedures, especially if folks are fully vaccinated and boosted, and that's going to drop those numbers down as well. So I think at this point, what we're seeing is sort of what's expected when we have low community rates of transmission, we're going to see less and less testing over time. But I would fully expect that to come up when and if we start to see numbers rise and more pockets of infection or more community spread. So across the globe, uh, BA2, that is now the dominant COVID strain. What does this mean for the future of the pandemic, Dr. Termina? You know, I think that each subsequent strain that we see has to be something that can outcompete the one before it. So it has to be highly contagious and look different enough to cause breakthrough infections and to continue to cause infections in our vulnerable folks. So it doesn't surprise me that BA2 has become our our dominant strain worldwide, nationwide. Locally, we're seeing this uh, as quite the dominant strain as well. And it would, you know, be expected to kind of keep in mind and watch for something that can then outcompete the BA2 strain. What is more contagious and can cause infections and breakthrough infections, even in those folks who have been recovered from Omicron. And that's what we have to look toward moving forward. It seems like all of these subsequent strains that we've experienced since Delta have fortunately caused less severe clinical illness, leading to less hospitalizations and less deaths, fortunately. And our treatments have become more and more accessible. So we're in a much better place, even with uh, new strains coming along at this moment. Okay. Well, I I wondered about that because it it feels like with each new strain, you know, uh, before BA2, we were talking about the BA1, um, and it seems like uh, that was more contagious. So should we expect 
each successive variant to be more contagious than the last? You know, if they aren't, they tend to die off. Um, so if something is, is you know, a, a highly virulent strain that causes significant clinical illness and potentially kills the host or hospitalizes the host but isn't more contagious, it's sort of going to die off. It's not going to be something that spreads as readily. So, you know, looking at some of the variants of interest that we have on our radar currently, we have to look and see which ones may have the potential to outcompete um, Omicron B. BA type BA.2 in order for it to kind of get its claws in and find a platform to continue to move through our communities. So at this moment, unless we have something that is uh, tremendously contagious and tremendously uh, challenging to treat, um, we are looking at more of these variants being something that are able to just have that competitive edge and move through our communities. What do you think of the federal government ending funding for COVID tests for uninsured people? It, you know, this disproportionately uh, always uh, affects our, our low-income folks in our minority communities the worst, and I, and I hate seeing that. But unfortunately, we don't have the ability to continually have funding for everything all the time. I would like to think that if we have variants of concern that move through our community, that, you know, if the benefit uh, significantly outweighs, um, you know, the, the risk of not having easily accessible testing, we're going to have to find appropriate funding for that. And it might just be something that moves through seasonally, perhaps this fall, we might have a concern where we need to have more testing available. In recent weeks and months, you know, there's been a lot of driving to get PCR testing just because folks want to know or just because of travel or other issues. And that's not necessarily a priority test at this moment. So I don't like it. I don't like how it disproportionately uh, affects our lower income communities. Um, and, and I want to see that there is still some hope for continued funding for testing, vaccines, treatment, and all of the above for all, especially if these numbers ramp up again. Yeah. When you think about the fact that there could be another surge, do you think we're at a disadvantage because we've decreased testing? I think that it should be something we are able to make that adjustment, I, I'm hoping. Um, I think that we'll get enough uh, leeway when we have been bouncing around at these low-level positivity rates. Something as much as a 1% increase week over week can represent a doubling or tripling in case counts, and that's enough to kind of take a hard look at what we need to do moving forward. I hope we are given the courtesy of some time uh, to be able to adjust and pivot just like we do on all of our mitigation strategies. And again, I, I encourage all to leverage uh, to the extent they're able to do so. Every household should be eligible for eight uh, at-home COVID tests at this point um, to, to be able to have on hand if you haven't received any at all. So the hope would be that there are more accessible at-home tests so Patients can get that testing done as quickly as possible and have access to treatment as soon as possible as well. If you're just tuning in to Reset, I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and that is infectious disease specialist Dr. Mia Teramina. We're getting the latest updates on COVID in our region, and we're learning more about why Illinois is closing testing sites. Dr. Dooley Health and Care, which is where you work, you're continuing to give out free COVID tests and vaccines. Why? Well, we've been very, very fortunate to partner with uh, the, the DuPage County Health Department and be a site uh, that has um, certainly administered testing and vaccines. Uh, 
as among one of the highest and most frequented sites in the in the entirety of DuPage County. So long as we are uh, continue to be provided with testing and with uh, vaccines from the government, we absolutely uh, have the infrastructure and will continue to administer those. It remains to be seen um, as, as time goes on. Essentially, the plan was always to have insurance companies uh, take over for the coverage and not have this be a government-funded entity. So the hope would be that we continue to have uh, the ability to test and vaccinate as long as we have the supplies to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, if those supplies are, are cut off by the powers that be, then the hope would be that, that we have insurance coverage that is able to uh, help afford these, uh, these necessary things for our patients. Yeah, we can still request free at-home COVID tests at covidtests.gov. Uh, where else, doctor, can uninsured people get free tests? Well, at this point, um, uninsured folks, they'd have to do a little bit of looking around to see if uh, area pharmacies are able to provide free testing for them. Um, I know Medicare is now going to be doing uh, reimbursement uh, completely for at-home testing as well. So that's for folks that are elderly and, and uh, requiring Medicare at this time. But um, there also is, if you don't have internet access, I don't have the number available to me, but there should be a phone number you can call as well to request um, those free at-home COVID test too. The uh, new Omicron subtypes that were recently found in China and uh, over in the UK, what can you tell us about those? So we've had several subtypes of Omicron right out of the gate. So when we speak about Omicron BA1 and Omicron BA2, those are the ones that we've heard the most about, but there has been in the background a 1.1. Um, there is a possibility of a 2.2 in China and also the possibility of um, you know additional strains that are, are yet to be labeled and named. These are all variants of the original BA1 Omicron strain. So they have a little bit of genetic difference they may or may not elude some of our initial testing genetics-wise in order for us to identify them, and they all are behaving quite similarly. We've got uh, on the radar this XE variant coming out of the UK. It was identified um, in uh, early January, and there's been at least 600 cases of the XE variant. That's one of those hybrids. We had talked about Deltacron being kind of a mix genetically of yeah. Delta and Omicron. The XE variant is a hybrid mix between BA1 and BA2. Um, it okay. appears in very preliminary studies to have a little bit of a contagious advantage, maybe 10% more contagious than BA2. But let's see, kind of, we need more time and, and more uh, data points to see if this is something that can outcompete BA2. Oh boy, I'm just trying to keep track of all the uh, all the all the letters here, doctor. Do we need to keep our eyes on on every new variant and every mutation? Is that what's happening? Uh you know, there's thousands and thousands of mutations. At this point, we have those variants of interest, those variants of concern, and variants of high consequence. And most of the variants of interest uh, historically have become nothing. They, they've just fallen by the wayside, and they haven't become a variant of concern. Um, again, we do have a pretty good lead up. Look how fast we were able to identify Omicron and how fast we were able to act and do testing on our available treatments and therapeutics. I'm optimistic that the infrastructure structure remains in place to rapidly identify what will become our next variants of concern so we can address those expeditiously. We got some good news last week, doctor. Hospitalizations in the U.S., they're down to their lowest point since the start of the pandemic. 
So do you think that we should take this as a sign that antivirals are working? Yeah, I do. I think that our our treatments are very good. Monoclonal antibodies and antiviral therapies have become incredible tools in our fight against um, this whole pandemic uh, in the the latter months, especially. Our biggest, um, you know, sword in this fight remains being fully vaccinated and boosted, especially making sure you have that third dose on board when it comes to uh, breakthrough infections from Omicron. That together with the fact that folks that are having breakthrough infections are tending to have a more mild infection, folks that are more at risk of severe infection have therapeutics available. We are keeping patients out of the hospital, and that's been a great trend. I still have some in the hospital right now, uh, but by and large, they're not in the intensive care unit and expected to do quite well. So the hope is that this is how things become livable uh, as we move forward. I've got to ask you the question, Dr. Terramina, that's kind of becoming tradition at this point. Are we making any progress on that pediatric vaccine? <laughs> we we are. We should be. Again, I'm waiting to see how the FDA is going to respond to Moderna's request. I think Moderna is going to be the one that gets the thumbs up uh, sooner uh, than Pfizer. But I think that Pfizer's data, again, I'm waiting for it, hopefully any time now to see how those third doses look. If Moderna's approved, it will be two doses uh, that are given four weeks apart to our six-month to five-year-old kids. And I think this month is going to be quite telling uh, for those little list kids when they're going to be able to get those shots. Adults uh, 50 and up, they're eligible for another booster. So would you recommend people go and get one now? I get a lot of questions regarding this. I think when we look at those fourth doses for adults ages 50 and up, we've reached the point in this pandemic where each individual needs to consider their own health risks. And certainly they can speak with their physicians as well about this. If you are a healthy uh, mid-50s guy or gal out there who um, doesn't have chronic health issues, doesn't have diabetes, hypertension, kidney disease, it may be reasonable with these low-level positivity rates to go ahead and wait a bit looking at community trends and looking and seeing if uh, the timing of a booster might be something that you can delay a little bit. Folks that have significant health issues that are over age 50, and that's part of the reason why the green light was given in this age group, because we have a significant number of Americans. One third of all Americans over age 50 have chronic health issues. Those are folks that should strongly consider a fourth dose, even if it's just marginal benefit right now, knowing that, yes, there could be be another dose indicated with a more variant specific booster this fall. So it's a lot of shots. I completely understand. But we want to go ahead and continue to give patients something that is safe, has efficacy, and gives you the best possible chance of staying out of the hospital if you do become infected. Yeah. Before I let you go, doctor, do we know anything more about long COVID side effects? So we're, we're hearing more and more about how this is... Uh, kind of a multitude of autoimmune processes and triggers that tend to happen in folks over time. We do know that your greatest chance of not having long COVID complications is indeed being fully vaccinated and boosted. We have plenty of data to show us that folks that are fully vaccinated and boosted simply have a less frequency of these long COVID side effects. Uh, Management is likely supportive. There's no Uh, silver bullet treatment that we can give these folks. It's simply managing their symptoms of fatigue, dizziness, fevers, and other things over time. So this will be an ongoing discussion for years to come.
That's infectious disease specialist Dr. Mia Teramina with Dooley Health and Care. Doctor, thank you so much for talking with us. Have a good week. Thank you. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.